Thanks for downloading this week's episode of Cross Defense. Today, Pastor Schulteis teaches us about the redeemed imagination. And then we jump back over to Neil Postman, who gives us 10 characteristics of the loving resistance fighter. Stay tuned. Welcome back to another episode of Cross Defense. It is good to have you with us and be back in the uh, proverbial studio. I am the Reverend Tyrell Bramwell, and our guest today is the Reverend Sam Schulteis. I am broadcasting from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and he joins us by way of the magical powers of the internet uh, from Milton Washington, beautiful savior. And uh, we're going to talk about the imagination, but I want you to remember, if this is the first time, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard the show, maybe you're not remembering at all, but maybe you're wondering, what is this cross-defense show all about? This is the show where we equip the mind, we excite the imagination, and we comfort the soul all with God's Word. We do all three of those things, and we try to touch all three of those things in each episode. We don't always do that, but that's really the goal, to try to at least touch on them in each episode. And so, yeah, that's what we do. We do it because we have a fierce foe out there. We have sort of a a three-headed foe, if you will. We have the devil and his demonic army. We have our old sinful self, and we have the world that we're contending with. And our only defense, our only defense is Christ on the cross. So cross defense. Okay, that's it. If you want to leave a comment for our guest today, you can do that. The easiest way is by email. Just go over to tyrellbramwell.com, swipe down to the bottom of the page, and you will see a very easy contact button. Just click that and you can send me an email. I'm most active in my uh, email inbox these days. I'm kind of limiting my social media. So if you're used to DMing me or anything like that, I might not get to that as quickly as I will at email. So if you want to reach out, you can do it that way. If not, just hang on and listen to this great conversation. Pastor Schulteis, how are you today? Hey, doing well, doing well. How about yourself? I'm well. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for letting me put you in the beginning of the show. Oh, glad to. How are we going to excite the imagination on this lovely February afternoon? Yeah, absolutely. So I I thought of a couple of different things as I was, I don't know, just kind of getting ready, getting a few notes ready. I had a few few leftover notes from last time. So I thought I would uh, try to bring in a couple Bible passages that... uh, were on the mind when we were talking in our last segment about the imagination and Christ's incarnation and how God becomes, you know, he becomes his own image, right? He he makes man in his own image back in Genesis. And then he takes on that image by becoming one of us, by becoming flesh. And of course, now that we're in the season of Lent, we think about this incarnation of Christ and God's imagination really on display for us in, I think, a pretty marvelous, remarkable way. If we want to know what God's imagination looks like, Lent gives us a really good picture of that, as does Christmas and Advent, showing the incarnation, showing Christ's birth for us. But now we see where all of that is leading to. It's leading to Jerusalem leading to the cross, uh, leading to the, the the image of the cross, the image of God's love for us in Christ crucified. You know, you, you said it well in your intro about the cross defense. And, uh, you know, the cross is certainly our defense and our hope and our comfort, the ground of our Christian faith. And I think when we talk about the imagination, especially as Christians, and I think today I want to focus a little bit more on that specific, unique part of what makes it the Christian imagination. And why, why do we have... Or why do we discuss rather 
the idea that we have a Christian imagination. You know, how is that unique in some ways? So I think there's a few different things to say about that and probably more than we'll have time for, but you know, that's okay. That's why we keep coming back and having these discussions together, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. It's a great topic. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if, uh, if, if too many people in the, in Christendom are having this conversation as regularly as we are. I think it's wonderful and needed. Yeah, I really hope that uh, this will help, you know, excite more imaginations for people to to do, yeah, to do some work with the scriptures, with the Christian faith, with the imagination. Um, quick, a quick, I don't know, plug, I guess. So a fellow Lutheran, um, a lay theologian uh, named Gene Edward Veith wrote a great little book a while back called uh, Imagination Redeemed. He has a co-author, I think Matthew Restuccia, Restuccia? I hope I didn't butcher his name. Um, anyway, there's a lot of great stuff in there. So if you know if listeners are interested in finding out some more information, thankfully, there's not uh, there's not a ton of stuff out there on the Christian imagination, but there are some good resources. And uh, Gene Veith has done some stellar work in that area. So just something for folks to read uh, if you're Absolutely. into reading Imagination and looking redeemed. it up. Imagination Redeemed, yep. It's a Crossway book. It was published in, let's see here. Flip, 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 flip. Mm. Oh, right, recently, 2015. So, 2015, okay. And not, if uh, listeners are yeah. wondering, if, if you start to look on Amazon, it's a bright yellow book. Bright yes, yellow. bright can't yellow, miss can't miss it. Yep. <laughs> All right. Excellent. So a couple of things that uh, were, I think, hopefully revolving around this central theme of Christ's image uh, or his, his incarnation, his work on the cross, and that, that word image and its connection to our imagination. Right? Because image, of course, is something, right, something we see. And imagination is seeing things, trying to see them in our mind's eye, right? trying to picture whatever we're reading, whatever we're listening to, whatever we're conversing or receiving by making pictures, right, conjuring up pictures in our mind, right? uh, the artist, the film director in our, in our brains. So a couple of things that swirled around together with that. One was a hymn uh, that's a, it's a very short, it's just one verse. Uh, if you're in Lutheran service book, it's hymn 422. And I'll just read the words for you and uh, see how that, well, you know, awakens your imagination and again, points you to Christ crucified. On my heart, imprint your image, Blessed Jesus, King of grace, that life's riches, cares, and pleasures never may your work erase. Let the clear inscription be, Jesus crucified for me is my life, my hope's foundation, and my glory and salvation. So there, there's obviously that word image is in there, yeah. which directly relates to the, the gift of imagination that God gives us. But then even more specifically, you know, on, on my heart, you know, we, we tend to think of heart these days as kind of the emotional center of things. And I think the scriptures include that, but don't limit it to that only. Right? In the scriptures, the heart is kind of the seat of our, of our being, right? Our, really a, a way of describing our, our whole inner self, not just the emotions. So I think we could include in that safely, or at least apply it safely to our imaginations too. Right? So we can sing this hymn on, on our heart or on our imaginations, right? imprint your image, O Lord. And what image is that that the hymn writer wants us to have imprinted, whether it's on our hearts or our minds or our imagination that's kind of behind all of that, right? Because to use our emotions or to use our minds or to use our reason or our creativity or whatever it is, we're going to have to use our imagination to do that, whether we know we're doing it or not. And that's one of the great things about the imagination. Sometimes you don't really know you're doing it. It's kind of a, an instinctual thing, right? There's, there's a, 
a level of that where it's just simply in everybody. But then how you use it, whether it's creatively or whether it's uh, making something, whether it's in your brain, in your imagination, inside your head, or using that imagination outside of your your head, you know, hands or music or art, uh, you're going to have uh, you're going to have that faculty being used, right? well, unconsciously and consciously too. Right? Uh, so the hymn, the hymns doing all that. Right? That's a kind of a I just think that's kind of a fascinating thing yeah, to to see hymns in that light too, especially as we approach this Lenten season. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the imagination, I'll, the language of on my heart, I think really drives it home, right? That uh, the image is not just external. We're asking for that image to be imprinted on our heart that, that yeah. we have to, to kind of use the title of, of Beat's book, you know, our imagination redeemed, made holy, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, imprinted where you cannot but see Christ in, in your creative faculty, in your, in your uh, imagining, in your mind's eye. It, mm-hmm. Christ is always central in that. Yeah, and an inscription is a very, it's, it's a tangible thing, right? Um, as we've discussed about how the imagination is a tangible gift, even though we can't touch it in our, you know, in our mind's eye, the things that it does, you know, in communicating language, in receiving and understanding language is a tangible thing, right? We use words that we can understand uh, and so forth, and we create things that help, you know, reveal meaning and so forth right? um, inscription is also a nice permanent word too right if you inscribe something right like the old line from uh what is it uh, oh the ten commandments right so let it written so let it be done <laughs> that's right you know if it's inscribed and especially if it's inscribed by christ in this case in the hymn or in the scriptures where this hymn you know gets its inspiration from well then if it's god's inscription it's it's set in stone right it's it's done deal you know, like the Ten Commandments, right? Written with the finger of God. And how much greater then is the gospel, which is also written with God's fingers and, and a God who really has real fingers too. So all of these things tend to swirl together, right? Uh, t- tend to get knotted together like a good yarn ball. <laughs> and uh, it, you can't start pulling one thread without pulling another one here. Right? Well, my imagination um, just went to uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And yeah. All of lights <laughs> that comes out of the garage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, Russ, I think we got a light bulb out, right? <laughs> oh, Dad, I think my homework's done. Yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. So another, another little thread that I want to pull on here is uh, from 1 Corinthians. And I, I think, again, this will follow, hopefully, on a similar theme here that we've been discussing so far, which is, again, the image of God, uh, the gift of the imagination, and the, the death and resurrection of Christ that really redeems our imagination and I think then equips it uh, to be well, to be that Christian imagination, that redeemed, uh, sanctified, uh, if we can call it force, not in a weird way, but you know that, that force for good. Right? The, the imagination as a redeemed part of us, just like we would say our redeemed uh, love for others right, can help uh, you know, help feed hungry people or clothe people who need uh, clothing or help others who are in need. Well, I think our imagination can be used that way too. So, anyway, that's sort of the fruit. Right? Uh, let's look at the tree. Uh, here is a little bit of First Corinthians 15. So I'm going to read from the, it's a New American Standard translation. So if it's a little wooden for some of the listeners, maybe use a different translation. Just bear with me. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and I'm going to start at verse 43. Uh, the, the two important verses I want to get to are 48 and 49, but I want to give us a little bit of context on what Paul is talking about here. 
And if you want the bigger, wider context, go back all the way to the beginning of chapter 15 and start with verse 1 there and see how Paul is unveiling this, you know, this grand chapter on the resurrection and really what Christ is accomplishing by his resurrection for us. And as we're looking towards Easter and making our way through Lent now at the beginning, uh, those things are on our minds and hearts, and they should be on our imaginations too. So uh, let's, with all that in mind, uh, let's listen to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, it, meaning uh, the body, is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthly, so also are those who are earthly. As is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. So Christ redeems us, right? Uh, and, and we... We, we acknowledge this, we confess this, we sing this, we praise it uh, throughout the season of Lent and Easter, well, and the whole church year. But it, it, it gets heightened, right? It gets intensified during Lent. And uh, this, this language of image being restored, right? We have uh, the fall being described by St. Paul there, and the image of God lost and corrupted. And uh, you know, along with that, our, all of our faculties, right? Our reason, our imagination, our senses also fall. But then Paul says... We have been redeemed, right? We've been restored. We've been renewed in Christ. And of course, that then means all of our faculties too, right? Our reason, our senses, our imagination, our bodies, our soul, our whole being is redeemed by Christ too. Remade, right? Recreated in his image. I think it was uh, it was Irenaeus, right? Or one of the early church fathers talked about creation and mankind being recapitulated in Christ, right? Restored, a new creation. And that's true in a in a spiritual sense, a theological sense, but also a physical sense, right? And that includes everything that is part of our of our being, part of our existence, part of our our creatureliness. And again, we're focusing on that particular part of the imagination. And uh, what a wonderful thing to be right reimagined, <laughs> and not just in the mind of God, but also in in real history, right? In with a real flesh and blood God man. God himself becomes man and remakes man in his own image and then redeems us, body and soul, and yes, our imagination, and then sets us free to use that imagination, right? To, to love, to serve, uh, to, uh, as Paul will say, I think it's in, uh, it's in 1 Timothy, right? Uh, that everything by the word of God and prayer is hallowed, right? Made holy. Well, everything it means right means everything. So, uh, imagination, right? Uh, our, our our twofold process of imagination, both our our receiving things as we're reading or hearing or singing them, but then also that creative um, kind of output of imagination, where we're we're doing things, we're thinking things that really aren't in existence yet, right? If you think about uh, if you're in a wood shop, for example, right? You can learn how to use the skills of a, of a wood maker. And then you got to actually go about doing the, the work of woodworking, right? And those are two different things. We've talked about that a little bit before, right? Imagining things that you see in your mind's eye and then doing it in person. And imagination has that twofold 
receiving quality as well as then creative quality to it. Um, there's some there's some discussion in a lot of different books about a primary and secondary imagination, and that's kind of what what's being uh, what's being talked about there, right? Uh, your sort of your natural instinct of receiving things, and then what happens with that is you right, you interpret that, you create that, you uh, you do things with it. Right? Uh, the imagination doesn't sit idle really ever, and uh, you know that should be that should just be on our minds when we're reading scripture. Um, or, or as Paul says in first, not first Corinthians in Colossians, right? Colossians three, uh, he talks about the new self or the new man, right? The new creation being, being put on by Christ. And of course that includes, you know, life, salvation, our body, our soul. And uh, as we've been discussing today, the imagination too. Cause it's part of it. That's yeah. Yeah, exactly. Take that part off. Yeah. That's part of the, the new right. Body, new, the new right. Creation. So real yeah. quickly, as we think about this imagination being redeemed and being re recreated as, as Christians, we want to use the catechism. We want to use scripture. We want to be in God's word to have that. that that's mm-hmm. the molding. That's the, uh, yep. the cast that's recast right. the, the coin, right? right? Uh, the mint. Yep. Uh, but we spend a lot of our time in an anti catechism, right? In the world uh, surrounded mm-hmm. by things that are influencing our imagination that we don't even realize, just like we don't even realize we can, we're always using our imagination. Sure. We don't often realize that our imagination is being shaped and formed by all that we're consuming. And I used use that yeah, most of a minute. So you have about another minute. Go ahead. Take it no, away. that's okay. I, yeah, it, it's uh, it's kind of like the old adage that your your parents. I don't. My parents probably said this, or you know, grandparents. Right? You, you are what you eat. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Uh, and your, your imagination is like that too, right? It, it is what we put into it, and so what we put into it is going to yeah, going to shape us in a, a lot of different ways: conscious, unconscious, good and bad, all sorts of those things. And so I think, you know, especially Lent is a good time to remind ourselves that, uh, to ask ourselves maybe the question, what do we want our imagination to be shaped by? Or who and what should shape our imagination, right? Um, it's not bad that there are things outside of the scriptures that we use to read and enjoy, right? as long as they don't pull us away from Christ, right? Um, but of course, the, the, the big thing is, well, our, our imagination is best shaped, especially the Christian imagination, right? best shaped by you know, the cross, by Christ's gifts, by his word. So Lent has always been a time of you know, right, giving up things, but maybe it's a time for adding things too, right? Adding more scripture readings or more devotional time or more, more of God's word and hymns and devotions that are going to really going right? to, they're going to train your imagination. They're going to shape it. They're going to build it. They're going to imprint right, the image of Christ crucified on our hearts and minds. Right? And the more we do that, the more our imagination will be you know, uh, made holy, right? By the word of God in prayer. And uh, you know, that's a good thing. Absolutely. We're at the leader right there. Thank you, Sam, for uh, hey, glad time to, to help us train our imagination to, to form and mold our imagination. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Pastor Schulteis is coming to us from Milton, Washington, beautiful Savior Lutheran Church in Milton, Washington. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. And stick around after the break. We will talk about becoming a loving resistance fighter. You don't want to miss that. And uh, we'll do that for the next two segments. So we'll be right back. Greetings, saints of our Lord. This is Pastor Brady Finner. I am humbled to be the new host of Thy Strong Word every weekday from 11 to noon. We will receive the gift of God's Word and Paul's epistles for our new series. We will travel with Paul from city to city, from letter to letter, as he encourages, exhorts, proclaims, and points us to Christ and Him crucified for your forgiveness. Join us, live or on demand, because God has gifts to give for you. 
we are back for segments two and three of today's Cross Defense. If you're just joining us, I am the Reverend Tyrell Bramwell, an admission counselor at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and you're listening to KFUO.org. However you're listening, thanks for listening, thanks for joining the conversation, and uh, let's get into it. So yeah, we're going to talk about, well, we're going to go back to Neil Postman's Technopoly. On the January 25th show, entitled Neil Postman and Dietrich Bonhoeffer Teach Us About Virtual Church, we talked about the church's use of technology and whether or not we as the church are thinking through what we're doing as we implement new practices, new technologies, using these different tools to accomplish what used to happen in person, namely the divine service. Today we're going to revisit that conversation. Specifically, we're going to look at the list that Neil Postman concludes his book with. It's a list of 10 characteristics that he provides at the end of the book for the person who aims to be what he calls a loving resistance fighter. So if you want to be a loving resistance fighter, this is the show for you. Stick around for the next, oh, I don't know, 40 minutes or so with a break in between. The loving resistance fighter is one who is against the wholesale acceptance of our online social media tools. Now, I, I'm using this language. Postman wrote before the invention of social media, so uh, you have to sort of adapt what he says. But he is talking about computer technology and technology in general. But for our purposes today, as we're thinking about virtual church, as we're thinking about all the different tools that we use to communicate the gospel, to, to stay in touch with one another as the church, whether it's specifically to talk about Jesus or just to check in on one another to see how we're doing as we're isolated from each other in this new world we're living in. If we want to be loving resistance fighters to the wholesale acceptance of these tools, our online social media tools, the tech that enables us to replace our enfleshed lives together with a virtual connection, the communion of saints with what is called a community. We use that language quite often today, right? Our online community. But that online community is actually more accurately titled, described as a digital network of individuals. Networked individualism. Okay, so Postman says... Most people believe that technology is a staunch friend. There are two reasons for this. First, he says, technology is indeed a friend. It, it is a friend. It makes life easier, cleaner, and longer. As one who lived through a very horrific medical crisis in my family, I'm very appreciative of medical technology, even though Postman, in his book, is a critic of medical technology for some good reasons. But we all recognize the benefits of technology, especially when it comes to modern medicine, when it comes to how we can do things, makes our life easier. Just think about the household chores that you must do just to keep your house in a living condition and how much easier it is today with our modern technology. Just, just the weight of a vacuum cleaner today. Just think about that. The weight of a vacuum cleaner. Have you ever pushed one of those old school vacuum cleaners? Oh, those things are heavy. 
Back to Postman. So he says, technology is a friend. It makes life easier, cleaner, and longer. Can anyone ask more of a friend? No, no, you can't. Second, because of its lengthy, intimate, and inevitable relationship with culture, technology does not invite a close examination of its own consequences. Technology in and of itself, because of its tight relationship to the culture, doesn't invite a close examination of its own consequences. It's a kind of friend that asks for trust and obedience, which most people are inclined to give because its gifts are truly bountiful. But, of course, Postman says, there is a dark side to this friend. Its gifts are not without a heavy cost. Stated in the most dramatic terms, the accusation can be made that the uncontrolled growth of technology destroys the vital sources of our humanity. That was dramatic. The accusation can be made that the uncontrolled growth of technology destroys the vital sources of our humanity. Whew. It creates a culture without a moral foundation, he says. It undermines certain mental processes and social relations that make human life worth living, he says. Technology, in sum, is both friend and enemy. Mm, that is quite the declaration, isn't it? Okay, so what can you do to be a loving, loving, we'll get to that in a second, resistance fighter against the enemy of technology? It's, it's evil consequences. It's, it's bad influences upon our culture, upon our lives. Now, don't worry. When you hear this list, it, it won't mean that you, you have to abandon all technology. It won't mean that you can't apply for technology grants or that you have to stop using your, your iPhone and the, the internet. No, it, it's not saying that. That's not at all what we're talking about. We're talking about using these tools, actually using these tools appropriately as Christians, not abandoning the tools. We don't want to abandon the friend of technology. We just want to guard ourselves against the enemy that is technology. It means you'll know how to use these tools after we talk about these 10 characteristics, or at least have a better understanding of how to use them, how to avoid using them to our detriment, or we might rather say how to avoid being used by them. Our tools today, our online, social media, internet-type tools, they're actually using us in many ways. I don't know if you've ever watched YouTube videos by influencers as they're teaching other people how to be influencers. Maybe you've you've gone down that little rabbit trail for a while. You'll notice that they always talk about the algorithm. And what you can do as a person trying to be an influencer to get the algorithm, uh, to, to use the algorithm to your best advantage, how to, how to play the algorithm, how to cheat the algorithm, how to work the algorithm. The, the, the algorithm is a tool that we're supposed to use, but it's using us. So many people are trying to make the algorithm happy, trying to, trying to play according to algorithm's rules. So you know, someone at Instagram, someone at Facebook, YouTube, they, they created this algorithm. It is a technology that now we all are trying to 
make work to our advantage. It is using us. We are now the tools that are being used by the algorithm so someone at Instagram can sell advertising. Another, that's another show probably. But this is, this is the kind of thing we want to be careful of. This is the kind of thing as a church we want to be guarded against so that we don't let the culture define us, that we can remain church, that we can be friends with technology where it is beneficial, where it is good and appropriate and orderly, but where we can put up a fence, a guard against the enemy that is technology. Do you want to be a loving resistance fighter? If so, continue to listen. By loving... Postman says, I mean that in spite of the confusion, errors, and stupidities you see around you, you must always keep close to your heart the narratives and symbols that once made the United States the hope of the world and that may yet have enough vitality to do it yet again. So let me co-opt this statement of Postman's and replace United States as the hope of the world with the true hope of the world, Christianity, Jesus. Christ is the only and true hope of the world. The United States used to be filled with many Christians, so I'm sure there's a correlation to be made there, but the narrative of Holy Scripture and our symbols clearly teach what it means to be loving even in the face of confusion, error, and stupidity. might want to take a moment just real briefly to make a side comment that by symbols, we don't just mean you know the, the cross you wear as a necklace or you know, the, the symbolism that we, we see in our stained glass windows, although that is part of the symbols of, of the narrative. But even like the Book of Concord, that is, that is a symbol. That is something that is pointing to the truth of Scripture. It is, is a pulling down and condensing and summarizing the doctrines that are found in Scripture. So it is a symbol. This language of symbol here is much deeper than just images on a screen or on the window or whatever. We're talking about all those things which are derived from and point back to the narrative of Holy Scripture. Okay, That kind of symbol. They clearly teach what it means to be loving, even in the face of confusion, error, and stupidity. So in spite of the confusion, errors, and stupidities you see around you, you must always, dear Christian, keep close to your heart Scripture and those things that rightly teach it, your small catechism, your hymnal, the book of Concord, faithful Christians around you who teach what is true, what is right. Who of us, <laughs> who of us isn't looking out at the world in 2021 and thinking how obviously stupid things have become? Can you believe what so-and-so just did? Can you believe that they actually think that is true? Can you believe this, is, this thing is happening or that thing is happening? It is just ridiculous. So many times throughout this past 12 months, we have seen ridiculousness squared, Right? To that, we can easily go to Romans 14 and learn how to love one another in the midst of confusion, error, and stupidity. Here it is, Romans 14, and then we'll take a break. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The Lord is our master. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not. For the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself. For what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This reminds me of something CFW Walther wrote about uneducated preachers. He said, Have patience with the dullards. But so far as the unclean ones are concerned, when it becomes evident that they are such, make short shrift of them. 
Love those who are weak in the faith, my friends, by bearing with them in their ignorance, striving to serve them that their faith may be strengthened and they can get over certain obstacles, obstacles of confusion, obstacles of error, obstacles even of stupidity. Patience. Those who willfully choose to confuse people, who teach errors without correction, avoiding correction of their ways, that is, and those who proclaim stupid things, well, they're a topic for another day. We're not called to have patience with them, not when the evidence is in, but we are to have patience and to love those who are weak in the faith. This is what it means to be, in the beginning, a loving resistance fighter in terms of technology and what we're talking about today. Remember the loving part on all that you do, in, in everything that you do. Remember to be loving. Remember to be striving to help those who are weaker than you in the faith. And it's kind of a good thing to consider. This isn't, this isn't a matter of pride. It's, it's, it's not that kind of a thing. It's kind of good to consider everyone weaker than you in the faith. Because then you have a disposition that aims to serve everyone but yourself. <laughs> okay, We're going to talk about the 10 characteristics that Postman gives us to be a loving resistance fighter when we get back from this break. Stick around. We're going to get to all 10 of them in the next segment. We'll be right back. Concord Matters is the program where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, Christ-confessing Concordians read through and discuss the Book of Concord, which is our Lutheran confession of faith drawn from Holy Scripture, so that you too may be of one mind and confess with Christ. Be sure to listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central on KFUO Radio or anytime on KFUO.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Until we convene for Concord again, keep confessing, church. Okay, we are back for our final segment of today's show. You're listening to Cross Defense. If you're new, if you're just now joining us, I am Reverend Tyrell Bramwell. I'm an admission counselor at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, a pastor in Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and the host of this show that you're listening to right now that is broadcast from KFUO.org and right into your favorite podcast app or um, on 8.50 a.m. in the St. Louis metro area. So however you're listening, whether it's on the website, the podcast, or over the old-fashioned airwaves, thanks for listening. It is good to have you here with us. We are talking about Neil Postman's Technopoly. We're about to get into the 10 characteristics he gives for a person who strives to be or wants to be a loving resistance fighter in the, the context of technology, who doesn't want to just wholeheartedly dive into technology and only see it as a friend, but who recognizes there are dangers that come with technology. There are things that make tech uh, an enemy, to use Postman's language. So you're a loving Christian, and because that's who you are, you want to be a resistance fighter in the battle against big tech and the tools that are using us instead of us using them and can be used by the enemy, that old evil foe of ours by our old Adam and by the world against us, against God's people, against your neighbor. Okay, so here's Postman's list of characteristics borrowed and applied, not just to the American, tends to be who he's writing to, but to the Christian in general. Here we go. 
Loving resistance fighters are people, one, who pay no attention to a poll unless they know what questions were asked and why. And we've all heard statistics cited by the media as proving this or that point, right? We see these polls all the time. How the question is asked shapes the result of the poll. We got to know that. Remember that. Drive that home. That's why there are so many conflicting reports. Polls can be manipulated. Statistics can be, numbers can be massaged any way to support any sort of conclusion, any sort of agenda. So if you want to look at polls, do so, but, but look not just at the results. More importantly, look at the question that was asked. That's what's important. How was it phrased? What qualifiers were included in it? What was, what was the point of the question to begin with? How might it lead to a certain answer and according to an, a, certain, a certain agenda? Okay, so that's, that's number one. Loving resistance fighters are people who pay no attention to a poll unless they know what questions were asked and why. Right? Pretty practical. You can implement these characteristics, these to-dos if you want. Call them a to-do list. This is what you need to do if you want to be a loving resistance fighter against the enemy of technology, not the friend of technology. And remember that. We're not saying just throw out your, your smartphone and be done with tech. I, mean, I like having lights on. I like using the camera right now to record this and the microphone to broadcast it. I like technology. It is a friend. But it is a friend who is also out for his own. If you're not careful, he will hurt you. We want to be on guard. Loving resistance fighters, number two, are people who refuse to accept efficiency as the preeminent goal of human relations. Efficiency as the, as the preeminent goal of human relations. Christian, you know, you know what the preeminent goal of human relations is, don't you? And you know it's not efficiency. What is it? It is to love your neighbor. That's why we have relationships with people. That's why God has put people in our lives and us into theirs. To share Christ with them. The love of God with them. The preeminent goal of all, every single human relationship is to show people Jesus, to tell them about Jesus, to love them as a little Jesus, as God loved us, to give of ourselves for their benefit. And this, this you know, my friends, you know this is not always efficient. In fact, I'm inclined to say that it's never efficient. It's clunky and clumsy. It's the opposite of efficiency. If you've ever loved someone, if you've ever gone out of your way to try to do something for someone, if you've ever sacrificed of your own self for someone else's benefit, you know that's not efficient. It is clumsy and clunky and messy and dirty. 
It doesn't always work out the way you hope, the way you plan. It is the opposite, the antithesis to efficiency. But it is the preeminent goal of all human relation. So those who long to be loving resistance fighters are people who refuse to accept efficiency as the preeminent goal of human relations. That's number two. Let's go to number three. Loving resistance fighters are people who have freed themselves from the belief in the magical power of numbers. Do not regard calculation as an adequate substitute for judgment or precision as a synonym of truth. We hear a lot about numbers these days. Like this kind of relates to the first one. Right? We hear a lot about the number of COVID cases, the statistics that we, we track and we monitor. Or how about this, as we're, it more directly relates to the topic of virtual church and using digital technology as the church. The number of people who watched last week's live-streamed worship service. We like to track these analytics, use our, our Google analytics to see what numbers we have, demographics, do these kind of studies. When I first started recording worship in St. Mark's out there in Ferndale, where I previously served before I became an admission counselor here at the seminary, in the early days of COVID, members of the church were excited legitimately, honestly excited about the number of views each service had. Why? Because I served a very small rural church and the views were triple, if not four or five or even six times higher in some cases than the number of people who came physically into the sanctuary for the divine service prior to the lockdowns. It looked like we were reaching far more people digitally than we ever could in person, physically. But as we've talked about on this show before, those numbers are misleading because they don't mean that the person who's counted as a view actually watched the entire service. And there's no way to know if they participated in the entire service or any of the service. They could just have it on in the background. It's counted as a view. They could have watched it, paused on it in their Facebook feed for 30 seconds. 30 seconds is probably very generous. I think it's more like five seconds. And they would be counted as a view in the analytics. See, that's the kind of magical power that Postman is talking about in terms of numbers. Numbers, numbers can be confused they can be misread, misinterpreted when it comes to statistics and analytics and these sorts of things. Do not regard calculations, he says, as an adequate substitute for judgment. Lower numbers in person at church might actually mean more substantive reception of God's word as it certainly does in the conversation between in-person and online worship. You are going to get more substance from being physically present at the foot of the pulpit, before the altar of the Lord where the sacrament is administered. You're going to get more out of that 
than if you're watching it on a flat screen. Numbers don't mean success. They don't necessarily mean anything. Okay, next one. Loving resistance fighters are people who refuse to allow psychology or any social science to preempt the language and thought of common sense. Ooh, this could be controversial, couldn't it? Here we could easily think about how the LGBTQ narrative is pushed using psychology and, and social science data, even though it flies in the face of simple common sense. Use your common sense, my friends. Engage your brain. The experts, quote-unquote, may say this or that. But if upon initial reasoning of what you've heard, it sounds to be contrary to common sense, it just might very well be. So pause for a second. Think about it. Do a double take. Get a second opinion. Explore it. Study it. And you'll find common sense sense that is common to all, not only to those experts, not only to a subclass of people who are positioned as authorities, though they may not be. It's sense that is common to all, and therefore it is probably more accurate than what you're receiving from that subset of experts. It needs to be verifiable by common sense before it can go to anywhere else. Okay. Loving resistance fighters are people who are at least suspicious of the idea of progress and who do not confuse information with understanding. Progress, progress has a sense of positivity to it, right? Moving forward, striving to accomplish the thing that you're trying to accomplish. Progress. For Americans, especially, this is part of our perspective. It's part of our worldview, our makeup, right? The, our, 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 fiber of our being. It's almost hardwired into our brain. One can't help but wonder, though, in the context of progress, the topic of progress, if a little suspicion of progress might have come in handy when our ancestors decided to build the Tower of Babel. A little understanding of God's Word might have shaped the information the people were working with when they strived to build that tower. Understanding and information are not the same thing. You, dear Christian, you have understanding, not just information. That understanding can and should be used to make heads and tails of information. And the information today is just Non-stop. We're being bombarded with it. We live in the information age. Thank God that we have understanding to be able to sort through and sift out the bad information and make use of the good information. Think about everything that you hear, all the information that's coming your way, all of it. Think about it in terms of what the Bible says. Loving resistance fighters are people who do not regard the aged as irrelevant. Technology trends toward the youth, right? The church operates in a way, however, that serves all people. Everyone, despite their age. No worship practice will best include all ages 
as the simple in-person liturgical practice that we've received from our forefathers does. It's the best. Their wisdom is not irrelevant. It is not geared toward those who understand the technology, those who understand the new methods of doing things. It includes the old and outdated, if you want to use that language. Those who the world sees as irrelevant are still prized for their wisdom and included in how we do worship. Technology needs to be a servant to that and not leave anyone as an outcast. All right, loving resistance fighters are people who take seriously the meaning of family, loyalty, and honor, and who, when they reach out and touch someone, expect that person to be in the same room. Drop the mic, my friends. It sounds like Postman wrote this in the midst of a COVID-19 pandemic, in the midst of social isolation, distancing, quarantine. The honor of father and mother from the fourth commandment is not to be forgotten, never. As Lutherans, we know that that honor extends to all those in authority. So that's one side of this. We give, we give honor and respect loyalty even to all those in authority as long as they are not going against the ultimate authority of God's word. And touching someone, reach out and touch someone, remember that phrase, is not a metaphor. Touching someone is not a metaphor for a text message or a phone call. Physical touch, the presence of being with people literally together is of extreme value. The loving resistance fighter knows this and is holding on to the language of touch, not letting it be turned into a metaphor that really has no meaning, not letting it that language of touch evolve and change. Language is always changing. The loving resistance fighter is resisting the change of language from physical to mere ideological to proverbial, but keeping it tethered to reality, tethered to our enfleshed existence. Next, loving resistance fighters are people who take the great narratives of religion seriously and who do not believe that science is the only system of thought capable of producing truth. Now let that sink in for a second. How many times have we heard about science and data this past year? It seems that science is the only harbinger of truth in our world today. It's one system of getting at the truth, one. But it is not the only one, nor is it always the best one. God wanted to communicate the truth to us, and he chose to do so through literature, through letters, through genealogies, through stories and declarations given by the prophets and apostles. He chose to deliver the truth of your salvation through pastors who proclaim the truth to you week in and week out in homilies, sermons. Science is far from the only system of truth. Loving resistance fighters are people who know the difference between the sacred and the profane and who do not wink at tradition for modernity's sake. Mm. 
2 Thessalonians 2.15 comes to mind. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Again, 2 Thessalonians, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. We do not just give lip service to tradition. 1 Corinthians 11, 1-2 says the same thing. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain <laughs> the traditions even as I delivered them to you. And finally, loving resistance fighters in this context are people who admire technological ingenuity but do not think it represents the highest possible form of human achievement. Postman concludes by saying, a resistance fighter understands that technology must never be accepted as part of the natural order of things. That every technology, from an IQ test to an automobile to a television set to a computer, is a product of a particular economic and political context and carries with it a program, an agenda, and a philosophy that may or may not be life-enhancing and that therefore require scrutiny, criticism, and control. In short, a technological resistance fighter maintains an epistemological and psychic distance from any technology so that it always appears somewhat strange, never inevitable, never neutral. Natural, I should say. Sorry, excuse me, natural. Okay, so there you go, my friends. There you go. Ten characteristics of the loving resistance fighter. I'll talk to you next Monday at 2 p.m. Central Time or whenever you listen to this podcast. Christ be with you and yours as you fight the good fight of faith. Peace. I'm out of here. Cross Defense is a production of KFUO Radio. Find past episodes and support Cross Defense at kfuo.org.